There's a line at the store. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. Yat everyone, and welcome to Determination, a podcast about sovereignty, self determination, indigenous brilliance, and the people who embody them. I am your host, Dara Blackwater. She'e Dara Blackwater Yanishye. So I am really excited to finally be sitting down to have this conversation to talk about spectrum sovereignty. The next couple episodes, we're really going to go through this concept of spectrum sovereignty and talk about why it's important, what it means, and really just break it down through both my lens and the lens of other people who work in this field. And by the end, I'm really hoping that I can give people an idea of what this is, why this issue matters, and the value of this natural resource to Native nations along with everybody else. So let's just jump right in and break down these words, spectrum sovereignty. If you've never heard or don't know what either of these words mean, it's totally fine. That's the entire purpose of this podcast is to talk about what these two words mean. Now, here's the main point that we're going to continue to come back to as we talk about spectrum sovereignty over the next couple episodes. Spectrum is a natural resource that Native nations as sovereigns have reserved their rights to. One more time. Spectrum is a natural resource that Native nations as sovereigns have reserved their rights to. So when we're talking about electromagnetic spectrum, we're talking about a natural resource. We're talking about electromagnetic waves that we can use for many, many purposes. And it's important to note that these electromagnetic waves are not created by any company. They're not created by any person. They're not man-made and they don't come from anything that's man-made. Specifically, we've learned how to use them with tools and technology um, in the telecommunications realm, but these waves are naturally occurring on the land. It's not airspace. It's not nothingness. It's something. It's, It's electromagnetic waves that come from the sun, that come from the earth, that come from the celestial bodies around us. So spectrum is interesting. It's kind of like water in the sense that it flows through and over land and it doesn't necessarily stay in one place. And it's this incredible, amazing phenomenon that happens just on earth naturally. And that's why I call it a natural resource because nobody's creating these waves. We're just learning better and better all the time how to harness them and how to use them to our advantage. We can use it for telecommunications. Pretty much any wireless connection that you're using, if it's Wi-Fi, if it's your cell phone on a cellular network, um, if you're listening to the radio, all the way to if you're opening your garage door with a remote control or um, using a drone or operating an, an RC car. These are all using spectrum. Anything that has a wireless connection is using spectrum. And as technology gets better, we are learning how to do amazing things with these radio waves. And they're very, very valuable. Spectrum has two different types of value. One is monetary value. So spectrum has monetary value 
because right now the Federal Communications Commission, which is a an agency of the United States government, they sell licenses for companies to use these waves. So let me run that by you again. Essentially, if you can imagine America as a big pizza, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, takes a pizza cutter and creates hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these slices. And then they sell off these slices of pizza, sort of like selling land, except what they're doing is creating a license to use this spectrum in these certain areas. One of the best ways that I know how to explain this is by talking about sunlight, because sunlight actually is on the electromagnetic spectrum. It's part of the spectrum. And if we're talking about the way that you can monetize sunlight for economic development, we can think about solar. We have solar panels. That's technology that we've created as humans to be able to benefit from a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So in this way, solar panels are very much like the antennas that we use to harness electromagnetic spectrum for telecommunications. What the Federal Communications Commission has essentially done is it's like they've put an entire solar panel over all of the tribal lands and they're taking all of the sunlight from those tribal lands and all the tribal citizens that live on those tribal lands and they are taking the energy from that sunlight and selling it to a different place off of tribal lands, selling it to Los Angeles, California. And they're keeping the money, putting that money into the U.S. Treasury. So then for those citizens on those tribal lands, not only do they not get to benefit from the sunlight, they don't get to grow crops, they don't get to feel the sunshine on their face, they don't get to charge anything with their own solar panels, they don't get to benefit from the sunlight. But on top of that, they do not get the economic benefit of not being able to use that resource. So they're not feeling the sunlight on their face, but also they're not getting the money that the sunlight is creating in revenue because that money is going somewhere else. So in this analogy, the spectrum that we would be able to use on tribal lands for telecommunications purposes is being sold to third parties, mostly big telecom companies, and that money is going into U.S. Treasury and not to the tribes whose land that spectrum is actually on and flowing through. The first spectrum auction started in 1994, and up to today, the United States government has made about $230 billion off of spectrum auctions. So when I say that spectrum licenses have monetary value, I mean that they make lots and lots of money and they will become more and more valuable in perpetuity because telecommunications isn't going anywhere. We love our cell phones. We love our Wi-Fi. We love our wireless networks. So we know that telecommunications is here to stay. And that means that spectrum is going to only get more and more valuable. Because think about all the things that you have a wireless connection to, even just in your house. Maybe you use a garage door opener, like I said. Maybe your baby monitor is wireless and you can monitor your baby from anywhere. Maybe you use Alexa, that's a wireless thing. That's a wireless connection. Maybe your blender can be operated from your phone and your lights can be dimmed from your phone. These all use spectrum. We call that mostly the internet of things. 
And maybe you've heard about like 5G networks. That just means that we're using a different kind of spectrum and we're using a lot of it to make things go really, really fast. So all of this spectrum that we're using is purchased by telecommunications companies or whoever is operating that network and they're using it to operate these networks to bring us these services. So spectrum has monetary value, extremely valuable. Two, Spectrum has value in the quality of life that people who benefit from it can have. And let me explain that a different way. We use wireless connections and the internet for so many things today. And some of those things you could argue are not necessary. Our blender probably doesn't need to be connected to a wireless connection. We can just hit a button and that's probably okay. But there are things that really, really are important that are really life or death. We largely saw a lot of this displayed during the coronavirus pandemic that started in 2020. And it was so easy to see this digital divide and the disparity between places that were connected and places that had no broadband connection. The biggest one was probably schools. All the kids were not at school. They had to go home and do school from home. But if you didn't have a broadband connection at home, then what were those students supposed to do? A lot of them just fell behind or had to go to a Starbucks or McDonald's, but everyone was using that connection. So it either got very slow or it became a public health hazard because too many people were gathering during a pandemic when everyone was supposed to stay away from each other. Um, telehealth is a very similar way where if you have telehealth, you don't have to go into a clinic to have your symptoms diagnosed and even to get a prescription that you can go pick up without contact. So we saw during the coronavirus pandemic that um, telehealth was so important and even every day when there's not a pandemic, people who have disabilities and have a hard time leaving their home, or even people who don't have the economic viability to leave their homes if gas prices are through the roof as they are now, it means that telehealth becomes something that's extremely valuable to be able to get either life-saving life advice at home or to not have to leave home to get something routine. Um, business became a huge thing too. So many people started businesses during the pandemic. And if you don't have a broadband connection at home, it's not an option to put things up on Etsy or to process orders that are coming in online if you don't have that connection. So Spectrum has a value in the quality of life that it can offer somebody who has that connection. And as we talk more about sovereignty and self-determination, you'll see that health, education, welfare, public safety, these are all ideas that are really, really important to self-governance, self-determination, and the sovereignty of a native nation. So those are the two types of value that Spectrum has. Monetary value in auctions to actually sell the licenses and make money for a government, and two, the quality of life. Um, of the citizens that the spectrum in that area may benefit. So when we're talking about native nations and this concept of sovereignty and self-determination, everything that this podcast has been about from the beginning, sovereignty is this idea that native nations have been governing themselves and determining how they want to live their lives for thousands and thousands of years on this very soil. So before Europeans ever became settlers in this area, on this continent, 
Native nations had been here for thousands and thousands of years, governing themselves and living however they wanted to live. So this is inherent sovereignty. This means that those governments and those nations, of which there are hundreds and hundreds, right now in America today, there are 574 Native nations that the federal American government recognizes as nations. There are even more that are not recognized. Maybe they're seeking recognition. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're state recognized. Maybe they're not even seeking recognition because they just know that they're inherent sovereigns. So there are hundreds and hundreds of sovereigns within America, which is also a sovereign because they have a constitution and they have, you know, declared that they are a country. So they, America is the newest sovereign in this area, <laughs> if that makes sense. So we have been sovereigns. As Native nations, we've been sovereigns for thousands and thousands of years. So when we're talking about spectrum sovereignty, it means having the, the control to determine what we want to do with our natural resources. And this is not a new concept. We have sovereignty over our lands. We have sovereignty over our um, natural resources that we already have, oil, gas, coal, water. These are all natural resources that tribes manage, that tribes, uh, their governments decide how they want it used and how they want it to um, flow through their land or how they want to use it for economic development or for their people. These are not concepts that are foreign to the way that America works right now because we have, as I said, these 574 nations that are all developing their economies and they have the benefits of being recognized as sovereigns by the U.S. government and vice versa. That brings us to this discussion around the digital divide. Maybe this is something that you've heard. It became a buzzword through the pandemic because the digital divide is essentially talking about the divide that is largely between urban America and rural America. And that means that we've focused so much on connecting cities and urban areas where a lot of people live, where there's a, a high population density. And we haven't so much as a country focused on connecting places with lower population densities that we call rural areas. So um, if you go out into the country or if you're driving through a place where not a lot of people live, we don't really have a great cell phone connection. Maybe you're on the phone and your cell phone is dropping when you're driving through rural areas. Maybe you live in a place where there's just not any cell phone service or internet connection at all because it's so far away from a city that they haven't invested in the infrastructure to bring you a good broadband connection. This is still this still happens in a lot of America and a lot, most of those unconnected areas are on tribal lands. So let me throw a stat at you here. 35% of homes on tribal lands are not connected to a broadband internet connection. And that's compared to about 7% of homes in America as a whole. So there are there's a higher concentration of homes on tribal lands that don't enjoy an internet connection. And if they don't have internet, that means they don't have all these things that we've already been talking about. You can't make this podcast and send it out into the world if you don't have Wi-Fi, don't have a broadband connection at your home. And so 35% of homes on tribal lands don't enjoy that broadband access. And that's a huge problem. And we call that problem the digital divide. These concepts of sovereignty, self-determination, and self-governance 
are really, really important when we're talking about indigenous peoples anywhere, but here specifically in the United States, because it's something that we as indigenous people have had to fight tooth and nail to affirm over and over again in the courts and in American politics, because that sovereignty and self-determination through genocide was almost taken away from us. That's what the United States originally wanted to do, was take away our sovereignty and self-determination by taking away our children, by totally wiping out our food sources, and by trying to commit genocide upon us as peoples, doing mass slaughters, marching us off of our lands. They wanted to take away that, that con- these concepts of sovereignty, self-determination. And so as indigenous peoples, a lot of our healing and reclamation and, in my opinion, a lot of the reparations that will happen between the United States and Native nations come down to these concepts of sovereignty, self-determination, us being able to choose how we want to live, reclaiming our land, reclaiming the water, and healing the relationships that we have with all of them, including with the United States. Everything that we've talked about so far, education, healthcare, policing, these all fit into this container of sovereignty and self-determination. From the very inception of America, the United States affirmed tribal sovereignty by making treaties with Native nations. There are many, many treaties that the United States made with Native nations. So let's talk a little bit about treaties. A treaty is essentially a contract and a promise that uh, one sovereign makes with another. And so these treaties, they created a nation-to-nation relationship. That means that one nation is making a promise and a contract with another nation, and they're going to uphold that contract and that promise. And actually, the Constitution addresses treaties, the Constitution of the United States. In Article 6, Clause 2, it says, All treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. So the main thing you need to know about treaties is that they were a granting of rights from Native nations to the United States government. And that means that those rights were held by that Native nation, the respective Native nation that was making the treaty. They held those rights, and the United States government agreed that they held those rights. And that's why they signed the treaties was to contract those rights and get some of those rights from the native nations. This is rights to land, to natural resources, to water. And it's important to note that if a native nation didn't expressly grant rights to the United States, that means that they reserved those rights for themselves. That's why we call tribal lands reservations, because the, that land is what that tribe reserved for themselves and did not grant to the United States. So even though that all sounds great and it's true that these that native nations were granting the land to the United States, it also is really complicated and we weren't really in a great position to negotiate when a lot of these treaties were signed. A lot of the treaties in the South and the East, they were what were what we call removal treaties, where they they had to agree to go 
to Oklahoma, essentially. So that's what the, like the Cherokee called the Trail of Tears. They signed a treaty that said, okay, you get to live and you have this land forever in Oklahoma, but you have to leave because we, because we as settlers, European settlers have to, you know, we want to live here. So you have to leave somewhere else. And so if you, I'm not going to go into it, but if you know of the McGirt decision, that was how that decision opened was at the end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. And that promise was that that land would be there for those people and for specifically the Muscogee Creek in that case, but also the Cherokee and a lot of other tribes who are now in Oklahoma lived in the South or the East and they were removed there and signed treaties that said they would go to this new place so that settlers could live where they were living before. And it was essentially, if you want to live, you'll move. And if you want to die, you'll stay. So if you want to live, sign this treaty and you get land. And if you don't want to live, then stay here and don't sign the treaty. So we didn't have a lot of negotiating power for these treaties. And they weren't even written in our language. So these treaties were written in English. Um, A lot of tribes did this sort of business orally tribal leaders didn't understand English. And so with these treaties, you know, if somebody handed you a contract in Chinese and you don't speak Chinese and they said, sign this or I'm going to kill you, you're probably going to sign the contract and deal with the repercussions later. So um, that's essentially the position a lot of tribal leadership was in when they signed these treaties. And right now, what we're really trying to do as Native peoples is say, okay, we have these treaties, we understand that it wasn't, we didn't have the best negotiating power, but we want these treaties to be upheld. And that's a lot of work that indigenous activists are doing now is saying, we have these treaties, this is a contract with the United States government in our nation to nation relationship. We want these treaties upheld. So I wrote down some of the things that were in treaties that really haven't been upheld very well at all. Um, one was that treaties were supposed to allow for undisturbed occupation of Native nations' land. But the U.S. kept shrinking the land. If you look at what the, even take the Ute people, what the Ute people bargained for, which was about a third of Colorado, the state of Colorado, to what they have now, which is a tiny, tiny little reservation just outside of Durango, It's insane thinking about what they signed a treaty for and then what it was diminished to today. So the U.S. kept shrinking lands of even after they made these bargains, they would find something valuable on the land and they would they would shrink it and shrink it. So they kept shrinking the land. They kept moving people, forcing them into a sedentary agricultural lifestyle And this was, as you might have seen the picture of buffalo just being killed by the millions. There used to be millions and millions of buffalo roaming in this area. And a lot of tribes were nomadic, which meant that they followed the good weather and they followed the buffalo. And um, they had summer homes and winter homes. And essentially, when Western settlers, European settlers came through, they just did not want, they wanted all that land and they didn't want Native nations to, Native people to be able to roam through these areas anymore. So they said, you're going to stay here on this reservation and you're going to grow things and you're going to live how we tell you to live. And that is the opposite of self-determination. So when we're talking about self-determination, we're talking about taking back a lot of these 
a lot of these practices. So um, before I've talked to Elizabeth Azuz about, um, she's with the Yurok tribe and she's a fire lighter. So one of the practices that we've had is lighting fires, hunting, fishing. Um, the way that treaties say that is hunting and fishing in the usual and accustomed places. So that means that we get to go and hunt and fish in places, even if it's government property now, even if it's private property now, we still get to go to those places and hunt and fish because that's what we've been doing for thousands of years. So that hasn't really been upheld in a lot of cases. Um, secondly, treaties call for education for tribal citizens. But what the U.S. did was they set up religious boarding schools whose leaders molested, abused, and killed our children. And that's not the kind of education that we were bargaining for when we made those treaties. Treaties call for health care for our people. And what the United States did in this case was they set up Indian health services, which used to sterilize Native women without their consent. And it offers too often inferior health care where this is true. The U.S. spends more on a federal prisoner's health than on a Native citizen's health each year. And I'm not saying that prisoners don't deserve good health care by any means, but I am saying that when you look at the budget and the priorities of the federal government, that puts Native, Native citizens really, really low on the list. And so even in the cases where we, where our ancestors rather bargained in these treaties for these good things, for education, for land, for um, healthcare, it still is not being upheld. I mean, when you think about all the land that Native people gave up and all the natural resources that Native people gave up just to live, and they, all they asked for was education and healthcare and to be undisturbed on the lands where they are living, and then you think about the inferior healthcare, the inferior education, and what, what um, the government has allowed industry to do on our lands and to our lands and through our lands. It's really, really, really crazy. So I hope that gives you an idea of what treaties are, um, what kinds of rights fall under treaties. So that brings us back to this idea that spectrum is the natural resource encompassed in our treaties. So now you have a bit of an idea of what spectrum is, electromagnetic spectrum, which allows us, it's a natural resource that allows us to use telecommunications. It's the frequencies and the airwaves that are on the land naturally. And you have an idea of what treaties are, these promises, these contracts that Native nations made with the United States government. And as it said in the Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land. So I want to talk briefly about two really important cases, Supreme Court cases in the federal U.S. Supreme Court, where the U.S. Supreme Court interpreted treaties to clarify exactly how they should be read, how they should be interpreted, and what was meant by certain treaties. And the first case that we're going to look at is a case called Winans. And this case was a case from 1905, as I said, the Supreme Court. And essentially the case held that the Treaty of Yakima, which was negotiated and signed in 1885, as well as treaties similar to it, protect the Indians' rights to fishing, hunting, and other privileges. So as I was talking about before, um, in some treaties it says that Indians have the right to fish in usual and accustomed places. And so this is an aspect of sovereignty and self-determination, saying that Native people have always fished or always hunted in these places. 
And Winans is a really important Supreme Court case because what it essentially does is it secures those rights. And and specifically, it goes further to say, as I said before, that rights are not granted to Native nations by the United States government, but it's the other way around. And it confirms that that treaties reserve rights for Native nations that are not explicitly granted away from them. So that means that any rights that Native nations have, unless we as Native people in the treaties, Native leaders said, okay, and we're granting away these rights. So somebody else gets to have these rights. The United States gets to have this land or or whatever. It means that we reserve those rights. It's a a reservation of rights not granted. So if we're not granting them away, it means we could get to keep them. That's very important. Another case that I want to look at is the Winters case. So essentially, the Winters case clarified water rights for Indian reservations. It resulted in the Winters Doctrine, which clearly defines water rights for reservations when it's not clear what those water rights are. And specifically, what the court decided in this case was that water has to be included in a reservation of land because it doesn't make any sense to reserve land for people if there's no water that is in conjunction with that land, then the land doesn't have any value because specifically what they looked at is the use, uh, the right to use and occupy land. So Native nations re- retained their right to use and occupy land. And you can't use and occupy land at all if there's no water. If you're a person trying to live on land, if you don't have water, you can't live literally on that land because you have to have water to live. And so if you're reserving land to live on and to use and occupy, you're not going to, you wouldn't reserve that without inherently reserving water. So that is what the Winters Doctrine says is if you're going to reserve land, it means that you also reserved water. So I really like this analogy between spectrum and water because just as water is a human right, the United Nations has found that broadband is a human right and access to the internet is a human right. Um, specifically, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations General Assembly, they have declared that access to the internet internet is a basic human right because it essentially enables in- individuals to exercise their right to freedom of opinion and expression. So in the big picture here, we're saying that it's a right to... F- and to be free to express yourself and to um, put your opinion out there, to put your thoughts out into the world. Um, and that is a basic human right recognized by the United Nations. Similar to water. Water is a basic human right. To have access to water is a human right because you can't live without it. So I really like this analogy between spectrum and water specifically because Spectrum and water are both something that flow through your land. So if you're not using spectrum on your land, it's still going to be there. It's still going to be flowing through. The The difference is you can either harness it and use it for radio, for telecommunications, for TV, what have you, um, or you can just let it flow right through your land. And that's exactly the same with water. You can either use it for, you can drink it, you can use it for hydroelectric power, you can develop your economy with it, you can just sustain your life with it, um, or you can just let it flow right through. And when we apply the Winters Doctrine to that, I think that's where the crux of this argument really is, is saying that internet is a basic human right. 
And we would not have reserved this land without reserving the resources that we need to live good lives on this land. And in 2022, what a good life means is the right and access to health care. Telecommunications is healthcare in so many ways. Telehealth is a huge growing field. The right to education. So much education is online. As we saw during the pandemic, all the education in America, everywhere, worldwide, was online. Everybody went online. Um, access to justice, same thing. In the pandemic, we saw that court systems were moving online. People were um, showing up in court on a video screen. Same thing with economic development, the right to develop your economy, the right to own your own business, the right to put yourself out there, advertise. These are all things that you have to have an internet connection to do from your home if you're going to do it now today. And spectrum is something, is an essential part of that internet connection, especially on rural lands, which a lot of tribal nations are. I hope you can kind of see this analogy that I'm making between these cases that say that Native nations reserve any rights that they don't expressly give away, which we've never expressly given away the right to spectrum. We've never said, okay, FCC, uh, United States, we don't want our spectrum anymore. You can have it all. It's not in the treaties. It's never been said. So that means that we're reserving that right to our spectrum on our lands and to serve our people. Because it's never expressly been given away, as we know from um, Winans. If we didn't expressly give it away, we keep it. We've never given away the right to spectrum, which means that Native nations should hold that right. And they should be the ones who can either sell it and keep the money instead of that money going to U.S. Treasury. Or they should be able to use it to connect their citizens and give them that basic human right that the United Nations has recognized as a human right to telecommunications, to access to the internet, so that they can exercise their right to freedom of opinion and expression. So again, I hope you can start to kind of see this. And at, through our conversations, we're talking to some really, really brilliant, great people who have worked in this field for a really long time. And with this base knowledge, I hope that you can kind of start to understand some of their arguments, some of the ways that they see it, which is different from me. I don't want to talk to people who see things always the same as me because I want to learn too, which I did because these people that are part of this podcast, this series are so brilliant and I'm really, really excited for you to meet them. So after all that as an intro, I want to introduce the first person that we'll be talking to, Marielle Triggs. Marielle is the CEO of MuralNet, a nonprofit whose goal is for every tribal community to have broadband to support their education, health, and economic futures on their own terms. MuralNet partners with Native communities to design, build, and implement sustainable tribal networks. So Marielle herself is not a citizen of a federally recognized tribe, but I've seen her be a great partner to so many tribal leaders who are trying to figure out how to bring broadband to their citizens. I've worked with Marielle for a number of years now, and I'm just always impressed by how generous she is with her time, her knowledge, and her energy. I'm really excited for you to meet her. Here's Marielle Triggs. Hello, my name is Marielle Triggs. Uh, I run a nonprofit mural net, and we've been working with tribes since 2017 um, in order to control, build, design their internet access future. Uh, that started off with uh, 
private LTE build your own networks back in 2017 to get control of your spectrum. And now it's all about trying to coordinate with uh, all the federal and state funding opportunities in order to build infrastructure that'll last you the next 50 years. Cool. So we're going to jump right in and I'm not going to give you any easy questions. I'm going to ask you directly, why is it important for tribes to control their own spectrum? Controlling your spectrum is important because uh, spectrum is basically the way any sort of wireless communications happen. And what you want are those frequencies so that you can decide who gets to broadcast over your land in order to make sure you can broadcast over your own land as you need. And um, in order to honestly choose the partners and the partnerships and the contracts and the economics of how telecommunications happens on your tribal lands. Because you don't wanna have to ask anyone else whether or not you can broadcast, whether it's internet, whether it's radio, whether it's uh, fire, safety, uh, police, anything of that sort of thing. You want other people to be asking you. So I could ask you, why do you wanna control your water rights or why do you wanna control your land use rights? And it goes to um, being able to regulate yourselves, being able to uh, manage it so that it's not mismanaged. It goes to being able to hold the reins when it comes to telecommunications over your lands. Uh, it's a resource like many other things. And uh, while it is renewable, um, it is limited in the sense that you can have interference with other folks around you. How does this affect people living on tribal lands? And what are the possibilities when a nation has authority over their own spectrum? On the note of what do tribal citizens get from having their tribal government control some of the airwaves, if not all of them? Well, there's a couple of things that could be done there. Some of the most obvious I tend to focus on internet is they can become a provider. You can build an internet network quickly that's wireless. If you're gonna be doing fiber, if you're gonna be wired, uh, you have to dig trenches, all these types of things, but cellular equipment can go up fast. And not only could you be putting up internet, uh, wireless internet services, you could be putting up voice. You can be putting up all sorts of different things. So what that means is the tribe itself can provide for its citizens and they can use other models. They don't have to go by the per month per subscriber model anymore. They could have other ways to either subsidize it or provide it for free or do all sorts of different things such that the tribal citizens can get the access they need to operate in, the, in today's economy and in today's healthcare systems and today's educational opportunity, you know, engage with today's educational opportunities. Now, what's also neat about it is it gives leverage to the tribe to affect the market. And what I mean by that is oftentimes there will be one or maybe a couple uh, options for internet, but it's just either inadequate or unaffordable. And so by just giving these other options, uh, the tribe can actually lower and make more economical the choices that the tribal citizens have in order to access the internet. You will be able to bring in more economic opportunity. You can build businesses online. You can suddenly have that socioeconomic mobility that you would want that previously you would have to leave the reservation in order to pursue. So it's of huge benefit. And I've had the pleasure of being able to see this happen lots of different ways with lots of different tribes. Um, we're in the 
in Hawaii a couple years ago at this point. And we got to, that was my first build. That was the first time that I saw a network go up and, and watch a nation put up and install their own um, sovereign community broadband network, which was so cool. And they could only do it because they didn't have to pay for the spectrum license. They had the spectrum, they dug the trench to get the fiber to their area. And then they put up these towers and blasted that signal over the spectrum in order to connect their homes. Close. They didn't own the spectrum. They used unlicensed spectrum. Oh, that's right. So the difference in that was, and this is where you can think of spectrum as a limited resource. Um, the difference is that is they use frequencies that anyone can use, but that also means that there's a, a chance that they are having some sort of interference mm -hmm. because the network that they put up was so concentrated. Um, and because of just the technological capabilities now, they're able to get some pretty clean um, clean broadcasting of the internet. So they get decent speeds and such, but that's not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about owning the airways over your own land or controlling the airways over your own land, the difference is, is you can plan more for the future. Mm -hmm. They can go ahead and keep building on unlicensed spectrum, but all it takes is someone, a neighbor to be blasting on the same frequencies and their service will go down. Yeah. Be much less quality. That's different than if they had control of those frequencies, they get to decide who uses it. And either they have that protected proprietary frequency to broadcast on, or they could be leasing it out to someone else to provide for them. So that's why you would want to have your own proprietary spectrum. So I have a couple more questions and then I'll let you go. One is um, you just called Spectrum a limited resource. Would you consider it a natural resource? Um, that's a very interesting question. And uh, yeah, I would. Uh, it's, it's there inherently. Everything exudes some sort of electromagnetic uh, radiation uh, of some sort. And if, uh, if you're not using it, unlike... When I think of resources, there's the, the limited non-renewable resources, oil, uh, natural gas, that type of thing. Then you have renewable resources like trees. And what's interesting about spectrum is I guess it technically could fit under a renewable resource, uh, natural resource, but it's actually even more robust than that because if you're not using it, you're losing it. Mm. So <laughs> literally, um, it's something that is always there available uh, for use unless someone's transmitting on the same frequencies as you are. And that's why it's limited. I learned a while ago that there's capital T truth. And as an engineer, that's what I was used to following physics. Um, but uh, when it comes to policies and what it means to be a natural resource, that's a lowercase t and that goes to law and such. And when I comb through say the national telecommunications um, information administration or the federal communications commission and what they term as a resource and not and a lot of their soft materials like the stuff that's not legislative mm -hmm. they call it a natural resource but when it comes to the law i don't think i've seen it there yet and i'd be very interested to see what happens in that realm in the next 20 30 years same i think so too um so speaking of laws and policies around spectrum when I present this idea that I have that we shared to an extent of, you know, framing spectrum as a natural resource and in my view, framing it therefore as a treaty right for native nations, people 
even when they get it, there's still pushback of, but how would you regulate that? And some of it I think is a little bit like we've talked about how I've been in DC and said what I do, you know, I work with tribes and telecommunications and people have asked me to my face, what are Indians going to do with the internet? And I think that it's a little bit of the same question sometimes of, well, what are Indians going to do with spectrum? How, how would tribes use spectrum? How would they even manage it? Do they have the capacity to manage it? And you have a very much inside view of tribes that have been managing their own spectrum. You've seen this all across the nation, um, the American nation. And so I'm curious, uh, just a little bit to, for you to share a little bit of your perspective of what you've seen as far as tribal spectrum management and what you think the barriers are of actually recognizing sovereignty, tribal sovereignty over spectrum. And, you know, we see all the benefits, but how could this actually work in your mind? Tribal sovereignty over spectrum, if my mind is limited, that that's one of the things that just blows me away when I see how, uh, Native Americans are regulating or the, the, the tribal governments and the, the nations are regulating internet in general over their lands. Because it could be wired, it could be wireless. And the question is what policies actually apply? Uh, wireless spectrum, uh, technically nobody owns it still. Technically uh, what you have is that you have two organizations, one for federal at the NTIA and one for other uses, the FCC, who regulate the use of it, um, but not the ownership of it. And that's still the case over tribal lands. Uh, in the recent uh, tribal priority window for the 2.5 gigahertz spectrum, it was interesting where tribes had the right to claim licenses over their lands if they weren't already uh, licensed out. Um, but it wasn't an issue of sovereignty because it had to be rural lands. And that's, that shouldn't be a sovereign issue. And there's still ice skating around what that all means. Um, when it comes though, to regulations in general over say what vendors can be putting up towers or in how high, and what do they have to do in order to broadcast? Uh, 574 federally recognized nations plus other uh, nations that are, their sovereignty isn't recognized. I've seen so many different types of uh, regulatory structures. When it comes to regulating your own spectrum, I don't think anyone has the right to do that yet unless it's a license that they have. When it comes to regulating internet subsidies and that and telecommunications on their lands, I've seen a lot of amazing things happen there. Uh, I've been impressed with how wily people have been uh, but really, there's a lot of stuff to be done in the courts to really establish uh, that kind of precedent. So you think that Native Nation and their, specifically their governments are up to the challenge of regulating spectrum for themselves? Oh, by far. I mean, they regulate much more complicated stuff. I'm not, uh... <laughs> in fact, I think we'll learn a lot. Uh, you got to remember that you have over 500 nations. So that's gonna be 500 different experiments and types of governance. Uh, you're gonna get some super creative stuff. It's gonna be more niche and able to serve their people much more accurately than what the federal government tries to do. I mean, the federal government has a nearly impossible task. Come up with a set of rules that works for everybody. Good luck mm -hmm. with that. Right. But then if I'm 
you know, a small rancheria in California trying to serve my people or a large land-based tribe in Montana, I'm going to be able to make things more specific to meet the needs of my people, my geography, and my economic situation. A big ahead to Marielle Triggs for sharing that knowledge with us. And thank you so much for listening to another episode of Determination. Determination is produced by me, Dara Blackwater. Ahiahe to the Shuttleworth Foundation for the funding to make this podcast possible. The intro and outro music is Move, I'm Indigenous by Aqualu Berthelsen. Ahiahe to you all for listening, and I'll see you next time. I'm your host, Dara Blackwater. Hogonet. There's a line at the store. Yeah. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. Yeah. I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. Yeah. I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. Yeah. I'm indigenous. I hear your whispers behind my back, looking at me like I'm a snack. Yeah. I'm indigenous. I won't steal your stuff, stay away. Stealing continents that you weigh. Yeah. I'm indigenous. The police on native lands. Yeah. I'm indigenous. Natives go take a stand. Yeah. I'm indigenous. Make a fist, raise your hand. Yeah. I'm indigenous. Like a fire, make demands. Yeah. I'm indigenous. Ay, ay, yo, ay, 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 ay,